Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia, I'm here with Joel, our non-fiction expert, and we are sitting across from Stephanie Wood, the author of Fake. Welcome, Stephanie. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming in. So I thought I'd start by just asking how this book came about for the people who haven't um, come across your your story before. It came out of a very bad relationship I had that ended in late 2015, um, and after the relationship ended, I discovered that the man I'd been with, that I w- thought I was in love with and thought that I would spend the rest of my life with, um, was actually not at all who he said he was. Uh, he told me that he was a- an affluent farmer, former architect, uh, with a house on the harbour in Sydney, he had once had a house on the harbour in Sydney, I discovered, but he didn't anymore. And most of the stories that he told me were not true. Um, and in fact, I'm reasonably sure that he had no fixed address at the time of our date, when we were dating. I, th- I think he might have been moving from one place to another, possibly from motel room to girlfriend's house to the other girlfriend's house. So there were a lot of rather distressing things I discovered. And then following that, I... Um, it took me quite some time to rebuild myself, I suppose. I collapsed into quite some grief and depression. And probably about 18 months after that, I was working as a senior writer at Good Weekend magazine at Fairfax Media. And um, after long discussions with my excellent editor there, Amelia Lester, and much soul-searching, I decided that I just had to tell the story in a, in a feature article for Good Weekend magazine. It was, it was too good a story. Once I was able to get some distance from it myself, it was just such a fascinating story of psychology and, and love and just so many wonderful themes. Um, and so the story was published in April 2017 and it went bananas on, on social media um, was quite extraordinary the response to it and as a result of that um, I started to talk to publishers. Very exciting <laughs> and how was the experience of actually writing a book as opposed to the feature article? Oh my lord <laughs> um, intense it was really really intense um, it's funny now because I look back at it and I, I've never had children but Often I've heard pregnant women talk about the fact, or women that have had children talk about the fact that uh, they don't remember the labour. And Mm. there's meant to be some biological reason for that, that if you don't remember the labour, you're likely to go back for a second and a third time. (laughs) And if you did remember the labour, you might not ever want to go back for those second and third times. Um, And in a funny way, I feel like now it's that with the book because it was so hard. And now it's all of that seems to have completely... I've forgotten it. I've forgotten just the... The hours, it's just, I think, I mean, obviously every writer will say this, the only way to do it is to just sit there and be with mm. be with the words and be with the screen on your backside. And the focus required is huge. Um, obviously with this book, because I was delving into a lot of my own personal history and other bad relationships in my past, I've had my share of them, mm. um, it was quite. It was very emotional as well. Absolutely. And so there were periods that it was extremely draining. Absolutely, I can only imagine. And I think I do think you do an amazing job at the beginning of the book to put us into the psycho your psychology, but also the psychology of someone who is, um, you know, who 
is lonely and wants a relationship mm-hmm. and who's ready for it and f- thinks they found it and all the doubts that you feel about that. Yeah. Um, I, in particular, I loved that description you had about um, the idea of we and oh, ha- yes. the, the sort of privilege of we. Um, Being able to you... say we are going away this if... weekend. <laughs> we are going to this restaurant. We are going on holidays. It's mm. it's a really powerful personal, personal pronoun and I hadn't got to use it for a really long time. Mm. Um, I'd, I'd moved to Sydney from, from Melbourne in my early 40s and at that stage in your life when you didn't grow up in the town or go to school here or go to university here, it's really quite hard to make connections. And the, your contemporaries, even the, the people that you're meeting through work or other places, they're usually wrapped up in families and children by that age. And so when you're on your own, it, it is very lonely. And um, I think I was fed up with that. I was really mm. ready to be open to something. And I saw certainly the first couple of dates with this man. I I, I wasn't very sure at all. Um, there were things he said that bothered me that I thought were really, really sort of um, naive, <laughs> awkward, I thought. I, there was an awkwardness about him. And I kept on going, stop being so damn fussy. And mm. it's, it's the refrain that I think mm. particularly women are often told, you've got to stop being so fussy. You can't so be we, so picky. Yeah, we're sold this idea, especially women, that um, you know we have to look for the one, essentially. The one man is going to make our life fall into place. And mm-hmm. there are definitely people who prey on that. Yeah, absolutely. And I totally fell for the fairy tale because, as I as I talk about a lot in the book, um, my mother had a very um, powerful relationship with my father, and she almost worshipped it. In a sort of, mm. but she she still does. My father died in a few years ago, but Mum is still alive, and she still holds this relationship as a as a sacred thing, as she should, which is wonderful. Oh, I got to, that moment that you write about. It. Describing the touch of his... Oh, I know. Oh, that was so... I know. And mum's not a writer, but the way she describes it, she remembers remembers the wool of my father's dinner suit as they walked down the aisle on her, touching her her bare wrist. Um, On their wedding day. I know. And she remembers that, the feel of it. And it it was so poetic. But um, I think she, in a way, she turned the whole relationship with its low points as well as high points, of course, um, into a poem and I, a fairy tale. And I, she talked about their relationship an awful lot when I was growing up. I don't think my brother ever got any of this. Um, mm. I tell him now, it's like, you didn't have to put up with all of this. <laughs> um, but it was, it was, she always made it very clear that the relationship with my father was more important than than the relationship she had with her children. And some people may judge that very harshly. And I think she is also very regretful now about certain things. But she said, I got married to be with him. And so uh, there are a lot of complex sort of family issues that, mm. and some I didn't go into in the book. But um, I can look back now and go, I see where some of the patterns of my relationships, those patterns were formed in my childhood and growing up. And certainly for the book, I, I spoke to a lot of other women who had contacted me after the Good Weekend article, and they frequently recounted to me childhoods in which there was a degree of uncertainty or distance from their parents or trauma, or one woman, for example, talked to me about her how her mother had always been jealous of her um, and 
that had affected her entire life because it had made her feel very small and unimportant and she came to expect to be treated poorly by people. Um, and certainly in my own childhood, mum has, mum has been amazing for the book and very frank and has acknowledged that there were points in my childhood when she was jealous of my father's affection for me and which caused dad to back away from me. Um, which is, and she says now, she says to me, how could I have been so bloody stupid? Mm. But she also thinks she possibly had postnatal depression. Um, I mean, life's complex, isn't it? Absolutely. Everyone's got crazy family stories, or, and if you don't, well, you're, you're a rarity. Screw eh? them up. Yeah, yes. and that's right. We pretend like, that we're pet. the only ones with an insane family, but everyone is just as messed up. Absolutely. Absolutely. That reminds me of that Batuta headline doing the rounds at the moment. Is it's like, study finds that every every type of parenting style causes children to be fucked <laughs> Yes, I did see that. That's right. I did see that. I did Something see that. Something like that. Yeah. Your very, parents very fuck you up, don't yeah. they? <laughs> I think that's you. a David Bowie quote, isn't it? No. It's, it's, it's a poet whose name is eluding me right now. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. I've had, definitely heard it before. <laughs> It's, it's so wonderful, but it's become, unfortunately, a bit of a cliche, but it's it such a, a cliche. cliche. <laughs> it's a great, it's a cliche for a reason. <laughs> yeah. um, the other thing that I think you really help the reader inhabit is that sense of falling in love and how, and the psychology of being in love, yeah. which has that, I've written it down, that, is it um, Scandinavian, some kind of... Uh, Forelskett. Forelskett. Now, I'm not Norwegian, and I don't Norwegian. speak Norwegian, but I think it's Forelskett. And it's just a word I found that is used mm. to describe that incredibly heady, exciting rush of new love mm. when your whole body seems to be alive. And there's nothing like it, is there? It's, it's just the most extraordinary thing. And I think I've had it many times over the years, but I certainly had it in spades with this dude. And um, I, was, I was just beside myself. I was, mm. I was crazy. My brain deserted me. And I, I, I wanted to know... Afterwards, when I came to write the book, I wanted to know what how our brain behaves when it's in love. And I discovered some really fascinating things. I spoke to some researchers at Harvard University who talked to me about our brain, it's it, what it does when it's scanned in, in MRI machines. The same, it, 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 has the, it lights up in the same places when we're in love as a brain does that's on cocaine. So... There is really something about the addictive... It's, it, we talk about the addictive quality of love, but there are scientific reasons for that to be the case. And our neurotransmitters start to do crazy things and there's, there's uplifts of hormones and neurotransmitters and chemicals and dopamine and all sorts of things going on. And at the same time, our frontal lobe, which is the more the newer part of our brain as opposed to the primitive brain, the limbic brain... Um, the frontal lobe starts deactivates in a way. Now I'm not, I, I don't have the scientific <laughs> words to exactly describe what happens, but the, the 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 Harvard scientists explained to me that it is not working properly when the brain is experiencing the rush of love. Mm. So it's got it's not it's it's the, the this frontal lobe is meant to be our sort of navigational system. It's meant to talk, help us make good decisions. It's the analytical part of the brain, and it's not being analytical. When we're in love. Oh, it's, the, it's the lizard brain. Yeah. Right. The lizard Driving brain's the taken over completely. <laughs> yeah. And mine, mine, mine went berserk. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's not just you. I think you do a great job of putting the reader in that position so that it's not just you and your... It's a universal sense. And then you drop the bomb 
of this romance, which is starts off not great, I guess. No. <laughs> or sort of like, under even though you were suspicious, you still... I just sensed something was not yeah. right. But I couldn't put my, my finger on it. I think we just want to believe the best of we people. We want to believe. And most That's of us so, are fundamentally yeah. truthful, aren't we? Yeah. And it's beyond our comprehension that mm. someone could spin the lies that this man spun. Absolutely. Her. And the part of it that I found most stunning, which, which sounds weird because there were some pretty horrific things he did, but it was the way he decided to lie. It was mm. the sort of drawing out lies mm. over long mm. periods of time mm. in front of you, having to perform yes. this falseness when he knew he wasn't going to be able to go I to the wedding he, yeah. or whatever. And yeah. then why not just say he couldn't go? Why did he have to keep saying, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to go? And, and then... I know. I know. I just, um, it filled me with anxiety from the oh, perspective really? of a liar. Like, I was, I would put myself into his shoes sometimes and go, I just, <laughs> I was like crippled with anxiety of the idea of having to, like, keep up all those lies. Do you think it's an element of the thrill? Of yes. I'm fairly sure that, the, that he got a bit of a thrill out of it all. Mm. Um, but I don't think he knows how, how any other way to be. Mm. Um, and people like him, it's the only way they know how to function. And I spoke to the book mainly um, after the Good Weekend article came out, I heard from so many people who wrote really long, candid, emotional notes on Facebook and um, to my email telling me stories, their own stories, um, and so many strikingly similar stories about just pathological liars that they had been in relationships with and how it all unravelled and the devastation that these relationships can Mm. cause as well. And um, most, of them, most of the notes I got were from, were from women, um, which I guess is, to be under, is understandable. I think probably women are more frank and open about mm. telling their stories. But I did get some from some men. Um, for the book, I only interviewed one man simply for space reasons and time reasons. I interviewed a lot more women because certainly it's a book um, more about women. Um, but I spoke to one guy and he described his relationship with his ex-partner as he, he had finally come to term, he spent nine years with this woman, and he finally came to understand that she was just act, her behaviour was not, it was just, she was just acting out her own true nature, just like a crocodile. Like he used this wonderful analogy, um, you don't expect a crocodile to suddenly become, you know, cuddly and sweet. Mm. She was, she's just being, she's expressing her own true nature, just like a crocodile does. That she doesn't know how to be any any other way, and that's when um, the book. In the book, I also explored the the, the subject of personality disorders, which um, are believed to affect around six percent of the population, which is more than diabetes. Um, and personality disorders can. There's a whole lot of very emerging science about it. It's not. We we think of the words psychopath and sociopath. Um, they're not, in fact, even mentioned in any of the official literature about personality disorders. They tend to fall under what's known as an antisocial personality disorder. Mm. Um, and then there's one. There's a narcissistic personality disorder and a borderline personality disorder. Um, and six percent of us are walking around with one of those. Those, those issues. Mm. Um, and I, I should also say that um, I spent time interviewing a, a psychologist, a professor at Wollongong University, who offered just wonderful insights, Professor Bryn Grenier, into personality disorders, and they're doing incredible work down there. And he takes 
it was a little, little, little challenging for me to, to um, hear what he was saying, I guess, because he takes a counter view, I guess, from my position. I was talking to him as someone who's suffered a lot from one of these relationships. He looks at it as these people suffer. These people with personality disorders are in such pain and such distress mm. and um, we need to take a compassionate approach to them. And I think, in fact, it, talking to him really altered my own views about how I should be approaching my thinking about my ex-boyfriend as well. That yeah. He's someone to feel great. Em- empathy is probably not the right word. but Pity? Yeah, that's not a nice word, though, is it? Compassion. I, I think Bryn's word, compassion, is probably the best one. Um, and I think we need to be doing an awful lot more to, to help people like that and to raise awareness. And there goes that raising awareness. Let's, let's wear a ribbon. What colour ribbon should we wear? <laughs> um, but it's a fascinating psychology. It and really I think is. if you haven't come across someone with a personality disorder, then it, it's really hard to understand Uh, I I lived, uh, an old housemate of mine had borderline personality disorder, I discovered, and she was mostly handling it very well, uh, medicated and seeing a psychologist and was very aware of it. Um, But the way she would describe it when she wasn't going through, uh, you know, an attack or, you know, it would come and go sort of thing. Was she described it as asshole disease? <laughs> she would just turn into a massive asshole to everybody, yes, yes. which is a, such a hard thing. Like, yes. how can you, as an outsider, you tell the difference control. between someone who's just being an asshole and yeah. a personality disorder? Yeah. Well, it's interesting with borderline personality disorder, which, to be honest, I don't know an awful lot about. But mm. the conference that I went to at Wollongong <laughs> University about personality disorders, there was one speaker who. There, there's a move, he took, this speaker talked about the fact that there's a move in psychological communities around the world to change the, the name of borderline personality disorder because mm-hmm. they feel it's very stigmatising mm-hmm. to describe someone who suffers so greatly with a disorder that the word is harsh, the, the mm. description is harsh. Um, and apparently, from my understanding, um, it's it's a trauma disorder. It's it's been it's been found that so many people who suffer well what's called borderline personality disorder now have deep deep trauma in their past mm. uh, of one description or another, and it's it's related to that trauma, and so the labelling of the of the condition needs to be different to reflect that this is not their fault, um, yeah. which I thought was quite fascinating. It is fascinating. So has that led you to? Do you think? You feel sorry for for Joe? Yeah, I do. I do. That's amazing. Not every minute of every day. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm curious. Like, I'm intensely curious. I would love to get inside the corridors of his brain and Mm. walk around them and see them and feel what he's thinking and understand what thoughts lead to other thoughts. That that brain to me is just so incredibly intriguing. Yeah, absolutely. And on the sort of on the same topic, how do you feel about the idea that he's out there probably dating again? Um, <laughs> do you feel there's I'm a network hoping, in place to to I'm to warn hoping people? that my book will <clears throat> and the article indeed will give people a little bit more information about how to avoid people that may have characteristics like this. Yes, I hope so too. <laughs> um, I mean, everyone needs to be loved, but when they inflict such pain in love, I'm not sure that 
love a, lo- a love relationship is the right place for them. Yes, absolutely. For, especially for people who don't know what they're getting. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> As if dating wasn't hard enough already. Oh my god. <laughs> well, um, Stephanie, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. It was wonderful to talk to you, and um, people listening can buy the book from Booktopia. Uh, it's called Fake Stephanie Wood. Thanks for talking to us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.